0: In the providence of God, we now find ourselves in Mark's Gospel, Chapter 2. We will be examining verses 1 through 12 in a few minutes. I've entitled my discourse to you, Jesus' Power and Dominion. And we're going to see that manifested in many ways in the text before us. This is a magnificent text that speaks of Jesus' Power and compassion to forgive sin. And I'd like to think about that with you for a moment. You know, our greatest burdens are because of sin. Our sin, the sins of others. And our greatest need is forgiveness, right? We need that every moment of the day and To capture the solemnity of those realities, before we look at the text, I wanted to remind you of John Bunyan's testimony in this regard in his allegory found in the dream written in his great work, The Pilgrim's Progress. Here's what he said. As I walked through the wilderness of this world, I came to a place where there was a den. Inside, I lay down to sleep, and as I slept, I had a dream. In my dream, I looked up and saw a man clothed in rags, standing in a certain place with his face turned away from his home. He carried a book in his hand and a great burden on his back. As I watched, I saw him open the book and begin to read. And as he read, he wept and trembled. Then, not being able to contain himself any longer, he cried out in anguish, asking, What shall I do? He speaks of living in a wilderness, which refers to a place of desperation, a place of desolation. A place of distress and drought, a place of hardship, temptation. And all we have to do is look around us and see that this is the wilderness in which we live. He spoke of the world, this wilderness of this world. And we know biblically that he's referring to the realm of Satan's rule in opposition to Christ. 2 Corinthians 4 4 tells us that Satan is the God of this world. 1 John 5.19 tells us that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we're told in 1 John 2 verse 15 and following do not love this world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, The lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Bunyan spoke of being clothed in rags. He was aware of this. And of course, this is referring to the rags of our sinfulness, reminiscent of Jesus' parable in Matthew 22. You will recall that a man was invited by the king to attend his son's wedding but he was rejected because he wore his own clothes rather than the clothes that were provided for him by the king himself. So Bunyan was very aware of his desperate need for the robes of righteousness. As we read in Romans thirteen fourteen, we need to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. He mentioned how his face was turned away from his home. This speaks of... Luke's account in Luke 14, 26 where Jesus says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. In other words, our love and our devotion to Christ must be so strong that our love and devotion to everything else is in comparison hatred. And we see here, that he had carried a book in his hand. Of course, this refers to the Bible. The Holy Spirit uses his word to bring conviction. He was sent to the world to bring conviction of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Second Timothy 3.16, we're familiar with that great text, that all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. And then he, he makes the statement that he had this great burden on his back. You remember that burden on your back when you came to saving faith in Christ? That burden of sin that was weighing you down? That's what he's referring to. He was deeply aware of his own sin and God's judgment. Unlike the Pharisees that were publicly bragging about perceived righteousness, we read in Luke 18:13 that the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast saying, God be merciful to me, the sinner. And because of all this Bunyan says, what shall I do? And there he's, Using the language of the Philippian jailer in Acts 1630 who you will recall fell before Paul and Silas and said sirs what must I do to be saved. Bunyan goes on to say while still in this condition he returned to his home not wanting his wife and children to perceive his distress he restrained himself as long as he could. But he couldn't hide it for long, however, because his anguish only increased. And finally, he bared his soul to his wife and children and began to talk to them. Oh, my dear wife, he said, and my children, the fruit of my body. I, your beloved friend, have lost all peace because of a great burden weighing heavily upon me. What's more, I have been informed that our city is most certainly going to be burned with fire from heaven. And unless some way of escape can be found by which we can be rescued, all of us, you, my wife and sweet children, as well as myself, will come to a dreadful end in this terrible destruction. At this, his family was greatly perplexed, not that they believed there was any truth in what he was saying, but they feared he was losing his sanity. Since nightfall was approaching, they quickly helped him to bed, hoping that some sleep might settle his troubled mind, but the night was as disturbing to him as the day. And instead of sleeping, he groaned and cried all night. When morning came, his family asked him how he felt. He said, worse and worse. Once again, he began to tell them about his fears, but they were not receptive and their hearts began to harden. They also thought that perhaps they could drive the mental illness away by treating him harshly and rudely. Sometimes they ridiculed him, sometimes they rebuked him, and sometimes they totally ignored him. Consequently, he began staying in his own room, pitying and praying for his family and also grieving over his own misery. At times, however, he walked alone in the fields, sometimes reading and sometimes praying. He spent several days this way. The story goes on to talk about how eventually An evangelist came along and shared with him the good news of the gospel. And he tells the story of many things that happened to him. And finally, on his pilgrimage, he reaches the cross. And here's what he says. Now, I could see in my dream that the highway Christian was to travel on was protected on either side by a wall. And the wall was called salvation. Burdened, Christian began to run up the highway but not without great difficulty because of the load he was carrying on his back. He ran this way until he came to a place on somewhat higher ground where there stood a cross. A little way down from there was an open grave. And I saw in my dream that just as Christian approached the cross, his burden came loose from his shoulders, fell from his back, and began to roll down until it tumbled into the open grave to be seen no more. After this Christian was glad and light he exclaimed with a joyful heart through his sorrows he was give, he has given me rest and through his death he has given me life then he stood still for a while to examine and ponder the cross for it was very surprising to him that the sight of the cross alone had brought him complete deliverance from his burden So he continued to look and watch until springs of tears welled up in his eyes and came pouring down his cheeks. Then as he stood watching and weeping, three shining ones suddenly appeared and greeted him. Be at peace, the first announced. Your sins are forgiven. The second one stripped off his tattered clothing and dressed him in bright new garments After this, the third one set a mark upon his forehead and handed him a scroll with a seal on it. He directed Christian to study the scroll as he traveled and to present it upon his arrival at the celestial gate. They then left Christian and he leaped for joy three times as he went on his way singing. And then here's the poem that he wrote. I came this far burdened with my sin. No, nothing could ease the grief I was in until i came here what a place is this must there be the beginning of must here be the beginning of my bliss must here the burden fall off my back must here the cords that bound it to me crack oh blessed cross blessed grave blessed rather be the man who there was put to shame for me Oh, what a glorious thing it is to be forgiven, right? And I'm sure we could all tell a similar story, a testimony. And what a magnificent truth it is to be suddenly clothed in the righteousness of Christ, to be sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise and to have God's name on our forehead, so to speak, showing possession and protection from God himself. Now, all of this is dramatically displayed in our text this morning. Let me read it to you. Mark chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. When Jesus had come back to Capernaum several days afterward, it was heard that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no longer room, not even near the door. And he was speaking the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. Being unable to get to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had dug an opening, they let down the pallet on which the paralytic was lying. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. But some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, Why does this man speak that way? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves, said to them, why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and pick up your pallet and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up. Pick up your pallet and go home. And he got up and immediately picked up the pallet and went out in the sight of everyone. So that they were all amazed and were glorifying God saying, We have never seen anything like this. Here, beloved, we see as the Greeks would say, Jesus exousia his authority, his dominion, his power over all things. Not only could he heal the sick, but also he had the authority to forgive sin because he reigns supreme over all of his dominion, all that he has created. And this is Mark's purpose in his gospel, to communicate these magnificent truths to every reader. So here we have another fascinating account that exalts our Savior and King the Lord Jesus and I've divided it into three categories to help us understand some of the dynamics here and frankly these are some of the dynamics that we see in evangelism when we try to present the truth of the gospel to other people we're going to see first of all the gift of saving faith secondly the miracle of regenerating grace and then finally the tragedy of willful unbelief. And I hope to make this passage come alive for you so that you can apply it to your life, but also I want you to see some of the modern parallels, especially regarding the willful unbelief, because what you can see if you look are the same dynamics at play today as they were then. The actors are a little different, the strategies... Are a little different but ultimately the goal is the same so let's look closely at the text verse 1 when he had come back to Capernaum several days afterward it was heard that he was at home probably with Peter and Andrew once again now you will recall in the previous verse in chapter 1 verse 45 after he had healed the leper remember that we read that he could no longer publicly enter a city but stayed out in unpopulated areas And they were coming to him from everywhere. So a period of time has elapsed now. We're not sure how much. Probably weeks if not maybe a few months. He's been out in the hinterlands now spreading the good news of the gospel to try to avoid the crowds. And now he slips in secretly. But eventually people find out that he's there. Verse 2. And many were gathered together so that there was no longer Room, not even near the door. And he was speaking the word to them. As I pondered that, I naturally thought, I wonder what he said to them. He was speaking the word to them. Well, we have a little sample in another passage, actually in several, but let me just give you one. Later on in Mark chapter 8, beginning in verse 34, we read, And Jesus summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. That's a little sample of what he would have been speaking about. Now let's think about the crowd that had gathered there. Most of them were, were merely thrill-seekers. Therefore, most of them were bored silly with all the things that he was saying. They had no interest in spiritual things, especially the Jews, because they were the sons of Abraham. They didn't need what Jesus was selling. Most people just wanted to see another miracle. I might add that most people who attend the typical evangelical church fall into these very categories. Some of you, no doubt, are that way. You're not here to hear the life-changing truths of the gospel that you might grow in Christ. Most people aren't interested in those types of things. They come to church because it's kind of the traditional things to do. Makes you feel a little spiritual. Some come because they're lonely and this is a place where they can meet friends. Some come because they want to be entertained or... They wanna have some opportunities for their kids through the children's ministries, but they're not really here to worship Christ. They're not really here to immerse themselves in the word and be changed by it. Some come because they're looking for benevolence. They hope if they have some needs, they can get a free handout from the people at the church. And of course, then there are those who come for the right reasons. And I know the vast majority of you are here because you want to see Jesus. In fact, I have a plaque right here in front of me that is engraved, and it it says, we would see Jesus. Now, I have to laugh when I think about this. Imagine right now if Jesus was traveling around Middle Tennessee and he was healing people. And word gets out. Just imagine what that would be like. And then we announce that Jesus of Nazareth is going to be speaking at Calvary Bible Church today. Why, we, we would have to have the National Guard brought in to direct traffic. There's no way that you would be able to come in here. Plus, you would have all of the mob violence, my goodness, you would have all of the leftists out there waving their stuff and, and, you know, because Jesus wasn't, you know, affirming their agenda. But most people would come because they would want to see those miracles or whatever. By the way, Jesus is here today. You realize that? And I might add that Jesus is still performing miracles. When you have the chromosomes of a mother and a father come together and create a child, that is a miracle of God. An even greater miracle is when a person who is absolutely lost and dead spiritually suddenly is born again. That's the miracle of regeneration. So that's most of what was there at the door. But there was also a hostile group in attendance. This was a group that stalked Jesus like a pack of hungry hyenas. They were called the Pharisees. These were the gatekeepers of religious Judaism. Think of it this way. This was the first century cancel culture. That's what they were all about. They had their own political agenda. By the way, Pharisee means separated one, and there were about 6,000 of them in the first century. They considered themselves to be the most spiritual. They were the elite amongst the people. They had all of the answers. Boy, things haven't changed much, have they? You have this in every culture, in every country. And within the sect of the Pharisees were the scribes. They were basically the, the scholars. They were the lawyers to hold everybody according to the law. I was thinking about this. They were kind of like President Biden's newly created disinformation governance board with the loony Ministry of Truth czar, Nina Jankowicz. Boy, you talk about the fox guarding the hen house. And so, I mean, the same dynamics are at play here in the first century. So the Pharisees were the spiritually elite. Uh, You might say they were the woke of Judaism. They could see things that nobody else could see. And they were going to hold everybody accountable. And as we study them, we see that they were arrogant. They were condescending, greedy, corrupt hypocrites. They looked down on everyone, even their own Jewish kinsmen, and they especially hated the Gentiles, the tax collectors, and anyone else that they considered to be sinners. They hated anyone that got in their way of accomplishing their political agenda to maintain power and prestige and gain financial support. So they were the religiously correct. They were the fact checkers of the first century and they saw Jesus as a threat to their agenda. So with all the crowds clamoring after Jesus they saw that their power was beginning to wane so they needed to do something and their something was to somehow entrap and discredit Jesus to get him to do or say something that violates either Jewish law or Roman law, or hopefully both, because they wanted to indict him for either blasphemy or treason and get rid of him, which they eventually did. Now, I would submit to you that Satan continues to use this same strategy today. You may not see it, I hope you will, after what I have to say, but the same type of thing goes on today. Satan hates Christ and all that belong to him and he wants to eradicate Christianity, authentic biblical Christianity. And he will do this through legalizing unrighteousness and criminalizing righteousness. And then prosecute those who refuse to obey uh, their standards of law, his standard of law and morality. And this has been and still is the priority of what is called cultural Marxism that is so dominant in our culture today. I want you to see the parallels. I want you to connect the dots with what's happening today and what Satan has done down through the years. We know that in the first century, Satan attacked Christ and all those who belonged to him through the elites of the first century. The same dynamics are at play today. Now what's sad is most conservatives, many of which really don't know Christ, they focus on the material or the economic aspects and failures of socialism, Marxism. But they ignore the far greater, more nefarious goal of Marxism, and that is to eradicate all religion through militant atheism and gullible Christians of all political stripes, not just Democrats, Republicans as well, they fall for this, even the clergy. And they are blissfully ignorant of Marx's goal of an atheist utopia. Karl Marx said, religion is the opium of the people. Communism begins where atheism begins communism abolishes eternal truths it abolishes all religion and all morality satan's up to the same type of thing in paul kinger's classic work the devil and Karl marx he says quote marx envisioned a new morality without god the path to utopia was a classless albeit godless society the classless society which would be a worker's paradise would said mark Make its own history. It is a leap from slavery into freedom, from darkness into light. Belief in God stood in the way of the totalitarian desire to transform human nature. God was a competitor to communist control of the body, mind, and spirit of man that Marx and Lenin wanted to redefine in their image. Now, it should be no surprise that Marx, who was thoroughly... Satanic, I mean to the core, wanted to fundamentally change human nature. I mean, naturally, Satan wants his own version of regeneration, right? He's the master counterfeiter. He wants to make a man a new creature in Satan. And that Americans cannot see the evils of Marxism invading our country as well as many evangelicals, is a testimony to the satanic forces behind it. Now, the left's never-ending obsession with social justice and redeeming what they consider to be marginalized people groups, no matter how statistically almost irrelevant they are. I mean, less than 1% of the population are transgender, for example. Nevertheless, the fact that they move towards somehow freeing all of these people should be a testimony to the nefarious goal that they have in mind. I mean, we live in a society filled with victims these days, except for Bible-believing born-again Christians. Again, Kinger explains the left's relentless search for victims which is a a baffling phenomena, if you stop and think about it, that can only be explained by Satan's use of cultural Marxism. Here's what he says. In a crucial respect, classical Marxism and cultural Marxism will always bear an essential enduring commonality, one that explains a lot about today's modern left. Both classical Marxists and cultural Marxists see history as a series of struggles that divide the world into hostile antagonistic groups of oppressors and the oppressed. Both seek out victim groups as the anointed group that will also serve as society's redeemer group. The victim group becomes the agent for emancipation in ushering in the new and better world. The Marxist must always then be on the search for the newest victim class, which in turn must always be made aware of its victimization. Its consciousness must be raised. In classical Marxism, that was simple. The victim group was identified by class and economic realities. It was the proletariat. It was the factory worker. But in cultural Marxism, this has not been so simple because the culture is always changing. The victim group is constantly being searched for anew by the cultural Marxist. The group one year might be women, the next year African Americans, the next year another group. Today there's a hard push by cultural Marxists to tap the LGBTQIA movement as the championed victim group lesbians, gays, bisexuals, transgenders, queer persons, intersexuals, asexuals, and on and on. Thus, a leading cultural Marxist like Angela Davis could stand at the January 2017 Women's March in Washington, D.C., before a sea of oblivious girls wearing pink hats modeled after their genitalia and recite a litany of politically correct grievances. In her casting about for victim groups, the former communist bloc cheerleader hailed the transgendered Chelsea Manning. She hailed trans women of color, our flora and fauna, and intersectional feminism, and denounced white male heteropatriarchy, misogyny, Islamophobia, and capitalist exploitation. Victims, 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 end quote. Well, my point with all of this is to get you to see how Satan is at work today and Satan is the master counterfeiter. Satan has his own standard of unrighteousness, shall we say. He has his own standard, his own law, and he will do it he will punish anyone who will violate it. And hence, he would like or hence he used the Pharisees in the same way. They had their own standards, and anybody that didn't follow what they said were in trouble. Progressive, democratic, cultural Marxists in the 21st century is the same way. And they really have a pattern that they use. This is what the Pharisees did. This is what the cultural Marxists do today and I think we have this list that can go on the screen. First of all, they would criticize. Criticize, criticize, criticize. I mean, think of critical race theory, manufactured outrage, endless hunt for microaggressions, and so forth. But then they would move from criticizing to propagandize. They would spread lies and misinformation, and we see this all the time in our culture. And then they would organize. That's what Barack Obama was, a community organizer. Mobilize the disenfranchised groups to somehow promote their agenda. And then they would legislate. Let's make laws that Christians absolutely cannot obey. I mean, can you get any more depraved than children being exposed to drag queens? And then that's followed up with incarcerate and ultimately eradicate. Dear friends, we see this diabolical dynamic at play in the Pharisees in the first century throughout Jesus' ministry until finally the masses said, crucify him. Now, back to the crowd. They're listening to Jesus, including, the, including these wicked Pharisees and scribes that are embedded with them. And this is where the plot thickens, as they say. Verse 3, and they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. Beloved, here we are going to see the magnific- magnificent spirit-powered gift of number one, Saving faith, the gift of saving faith. Now, let's imagine the scene. This man was paralyzed. He was utterly incapable of moving on his own. Now, unlike the leper, whose appearance symbolized the horror of sin, here we have a paralyzed man whose inability to move symbolizes man's utter helplessness his utter inability to find recovery in himself he is utterly dependent upon God to show him mercy my what a picture of total depravity right or as it's often called total inability I want you to remember this because all men are active haters of God as we read in Romans 8 and verse 7 Because all men are spiritually dead apart from Christ, dead in their sins, Ephesians 2.1. Because they cannot accept the truth. They cannot even understand it, as we read in 1 Corinthians 2.14. Therefore, man can do nothing to save himself. He is is totally dependent upon God to accomplish his salvation as a gift of his sovereign grace. And we're going to see this play out here. Verse 4. Being unable to get him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had dug an opening, they let down the pallet on which the paralytic was lying. By the way, this was plan B. Luke helps us understand that. In Luke five eighteen, the same account we read, And some men were carrying on a bed a man who was paralyzed, And they were trying to bring him in and to set him down in front of him. You know what it's like in a big crowd when everybody's fascinated with something. You can't get through. And that's what was going on here. Especially if there's four guys carrying a guy on a bed. You know. They're just not going to let you through. And it goes on to say, but not finding a way to bring him in because of the crowd. They went up on the roof and let him down through the tiles with his stretcher into the middle of the crowd. And I love this. In front of Jesus. Isn't that great? They figured out exactly. I mean, not behind, not to, I mean, right in front of Jesus. My, what a picture of people that love others enough to bring them to Christ. What a picture of that. Now, houses in the first century, and frankly, a lot of them to this day in Israel, um, had an open roof above the first floor. They had thatched roofs. They had uh, mud and straw and different things tiles on top of that and that's what we read here they went up on the roof and let him down through the tiles with his stretcher into the middle of the crowd in front of Jesus what an amazing scene imagine Jesus is standing there speaking and all of a sudden there's there's stuff falling down and he's probably talking and looking up and the people are what in the world's going on and then all of a sudden here comes this dude coming down on a, on ropes it, what an amazing scene. Right in front of Jesus, verse 5, I love this. He, it says, And Jesus seeing their faith. Now let's stop there. Jesus saw their faith. I mean, how can he do that? Because he's God, because he's omniscient. He saw their faith. He knew that they wanted something far more glorious and physical healing they wanted forgiveness by the way all of those men were saved in that encounter Jesus knew they were among the elect part of his bridal church for whom the, he would die he could see that he could discern the sincere as well as the insincere by the way he can do that today He can look in your heart right now and he can see if you're sincere, if you're phony. We see this, by the way, in John 2, beginning in verse 23, an example of this. It says, now, when, when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs, which he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he did not any need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. So he could see who was and who wasn't sincere. So Jesus sees their faith. Now we know that faith is a gift from God. Ephesians 2.8, other passages. This is something that God gives. It is a, catch this now, little theology lesson, very important. Faith is a result of Regeneration. Regeneration is just that that giving of spiritual sight to the blind. It's raising the spiritual dead to spiritual life. It's that supernatural impartation of spiritual life to the spiritually dead. It means to be born again. Now, remember, the act of faith does not initiate the Spirit's work of regeneration. All right? The act of faith does not initiate the Spirit's work of regeneration. The very opposite is true. It is the Spirit's work of regeneration that initiates the act of faith. And this brings me to the second point in our little outline. That is the miracle of regenerating grace. Now, we won't take time to go there, but let me remind you in John 3.8 with Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus... He describes the great mystery of regeneration by comparing it to the wind that blows where it wishes. And the point is, we may experience the effects of the wind, but those effects are not the wind itself. In the same way, we can see the effects of regeneration, but those effects are not regeneration itself. Now, from a temporal perspective, if you want to try to split some theological hairs here, uh, you could say that uh, regeneration and saving faith occur simultaneously at the moment a person is born again. At the moment they repent and believe in the, in the gospel. But simultaneity does not rule out causality. One still causes the other. Let me give you an example of this from Scripture. Scripture. In 2 Corinthians 4, 4, 4, you recall where Paul illustrated this by comparing regeneration to the giving of spiritual sight to the spiritually blind eyes of a sinner so that they can see the light of the glory of Christ. And, of course, we can understand that, can't we? As soon as blind eyes are opened, what happens? They instantly perceive Light. However, seeing light didn't cause the eyes to be opened, right? His sight was the consequence of his eyes being opened. The same thing is true in regeneration. So what has been going on here? These men, by the power of the Spirit, have been convicted of their sin. Somehow, in God's great love, he, has, he is he's calling them to himself. They, 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 have, they have heard the truths of the gospel. They know who Jesus is. And then by the miracle of regeneration, he's opening their eyes now to see the light of the glory of Christ and give them the gift of faith. And then, of course, the result of regeneration is sanctification. We're made a new creature in Christ. The old things pass away and we begin that process of being conformed into the likeness of Christ. So Jesus knew these men were sheep of his pasture. I think of John six thirty seven, where Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And obviously he knows who the Father has given to him. All that the Father gives me, the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out heaven not to do my own will but the will of him who sent me this is the will of him who sent me that of all that he has given me I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day so this helpless man and his friends had faith in Jesus to heal this man physically and to heal them all spiritually verse 5 and Jesus seeing their faith said to the paralytic son your sins are forgiven. By the way, the Greek construction here indicates that there were some specific sins that Jesus was very aware of. And obviously this man was too. Even though I came to faith as a nine-year-old boy, I can still remember being convicted over my sins. Now, they weren't as grand and as horrible as they might have been had I lived without Christ for more years, right? Right? But when we come to Christ, we're aware of our sin. And Christ is aware of them far more than we can even imagine. Because we see the snowflake on the proverbial tip of the iceberg. And that's all. Jesus sees it all. So he says, Your sins are forgiven. Jesus knew that they longed for forgiveness as well as healing. And instantly now, this man is, that was paralyzed both physically as well as spiritually receives new life. Boy, this is the miracle of regeneration, isn't it? We're given a new nature. One day, we're going to get the new body. I'm not paralyzed right now, but I, as I get older, I feel things kind of moving in that direction. We all do. Your sins are forgiven. Yes, you are guilty, but you, because of your faith, have been pardoned. Oh, what glorious words. Beloved, this is our greatest need, forgiveness of sins. It reminds me of that, that verse in the lyrics of David Phelps's hymn, It is well with my soul. My sin, we sing. Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O oh, my soul. The words of Paul's sermon to the men of Israel comes to mind. In Acts thirteen thirty-eight, we read what he said. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And through him, everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. In other words, you can't earn your way into the kingdom. And likewise, Paul said in Ephesians 1, beginning in verse 7, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. Oh, dear friends, please hear this. Jesus forgives sin. He paid the penalty of our sins. He nailed them to the cross. You know, you can either trust Jesus to be your Savior. You can either trust Jesus to be the one who paid for your sins. Or you can reject Him and you can pay for your own sins in the eternal torments of hell. Well, this was too much for the religious elites. The Pharisees could see their power slipping away. So it was time to, you guessed it, criticize, propagandize, organize, legislate, incarcerate, and eradicate. And so they set the whole thing into motion. And we're going to see this throughout Jesus' ministry. And here we come to the tragedy of willful unbelief. Verse 6, but some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. Why does this man speak that way? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Well, you know what? That, that is true. <laughs> and that was exactly Jesus' point, that he was God. And to claim equality of God, of course, in Judaism was the worst blasphemy of all. I must remind you and warn you that Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. I think of what he said in Matthew twenty-eight, eighteen: All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And Jesus said in, Matthew, in John chapter 5, beginning in verse 22, For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son. Then he continues in verse 27. He gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth, those who did the good deeds, to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. And we see various passages that describe the judgment where Jesus will stand as the Holy One who has been offended and who will pronounce that judgment. We see the great white, jo- ju- great white throne judgment in Revelation 20, for example. In verse 11, we read this, then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, referring to Jesus, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. In other words, the unsaved will stand in open space. No place to hide before the Lord Jesus. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. And books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire this is the second death the lake of fire and if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life he was thrown into the lake of fire now back to our text Jesus is now manifesting his deity in front of everyone verse 8 immediately Jesus aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves in other words he's reading their minds He says to them, why are you reasoning about these things in your heart? Again, this is proof that he's God because he's omniscient. Then he says something very curious, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and pick up your pallet and walk. That's an interesting statement. Great question. I mean, both of these things are impossible for man to do. God alone can forgive sins God alone could heal a paralytic and of course that's precisely what Jesus wanted them to see he's basically saying which is easier to irrefutably validate my claim to deity to say your sins are forgiven eh I mean anybody can say that I mean how do you know if that's really going to happen or to say get up Not only get up, pick up your pallet. Not only get up and pick up your pallet, but walk. Oh my. Obviously the latter is the most compelling. Could there be any greater way of demonstrating the veracity of Jesus' claim to be God, very God? Verse 10, but so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Now, I want to pause there for a second. It's very interesting that he used the phrase Son of Man. He knew that they knew that that was a messianic title out of Daniel 7.13. They would have been very familiar with that. So he says, But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins like he turns to the paralytic looks at him and he says I say to you get up pick up your pallet and go home and he got up immediately picked up the pallet and went out in the sight of everyone so that they were all amazed and were glorifying God saying we have never seen anything like this I mean, they were absolutely astounded. Luke tells us in Luke five twenty six that they were all struck with astonishment. Ekstasis is the, 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 the Greek term. It, it can also be translated to be put in a trance, to be, I mean, to, to put it this way, it's take your breath away speechless. They just couldn't believe it. But then that gives rise to a doxology, inevitably. And that's why it says they were all struck with astonishment and began glorifying God. And it says, and they were filled with fear, phobos in the original language. Uh, it, it, here in this context, it speaks of, a, of just a, a, an, an all-consuming reverential awe. They knew that they were in the presence of the Most High God. And it says that they were saying, We have seen remarkable things today. So they departed glorifying God. But not the Pharisees. Now think about what just happened here from the perspective of the scribes and Pharisees. They knew that Jesus had read their minds. They knew also that he claimed to forgive sins, but then they saw with their own eyes that he healed a paralytic. So what does this prove? Well, he's a fraud. He's a blasphemer. You see, dear friends, to the unregenerate who are willfully unregenerate, who willfully refuse to believe, two plus two is always five doesn't matter how you present it this is a demonstration of willful unbelief I mean come on the man was healed right in front of their eyes Luke five twenty-five says immediately he got up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God I mean it's astounding I mean, it would be a miracle of enough that that suddenly he could move. But then he gets up, and then he picks up this bed that he's been walking on. He carries it out in front of everybody. But we know that the Pharisees continued their campaign of terror against Jesus despite the opposite. Beloved, please hear this. Truth never is considered. When a political agenda is at stake. In Luke six, six, later on we read how Jesus healed a man whose right hand was withered. And here's what happened. But the Pharisees themselves were filled with rage and discussed together what they might do to Jesus. Luke eleven fifteen, he casts out demons by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. And then we read in that passage how Jesus just absolutely rakes them over the coals. He calls them concealed tombs and so forth. So they step up their attacks. Verse 53 and following says, When he left there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to be very hostile and to question him closely on many subjects. In other words, it's the mob following him. plotting against him, it says, to catch him in something he might say. Oh, dear friends, how sad to see so many back then as well as today reject the person and the work of Christ. Maybe you don't reject him completely, but you live as if he makes no difference. You just live for yourself. Some of you young people spend your life on these silly little gadgets, living in a fool's paradise, allowing your mind to be poisoned by garbage. I wanna ask you, what are you gonna do with Jesus? A lot of you adults just live out your life trying to make a buck, trying to have a good time, watching a little television, being entertained. A lot of those things are nice and fine, but what are you doing with Jesus? Do you believe he is who he says he is? If you do, then you need to worship him. You need to serve him and honor him in your life. And for those of you who know nothing of what I'm talking about, it's because you have never become fully convinced of the heinousness of your sin and how offensive it is to a holy God. And until you come to that place by the power of the Spirit, you will never long for the forgiveness that only Christ can give. And I pray that today will be that day. Wasn't it wonderful that we serve a living Christ? who has the power and the authority and the dominion over all things and that he has saved us by his grace. Oh, what a glorious Savior. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for these eternal truths that speak to our hearts so clearly. And even though we continue to see how Satan uses the various aspects of political machinations and culture to somehow thwart your purposes and destroy your people. Nevertheless, Lord, we are so thankful that you are ultimately sovereign over all things and that you are going to build your church come what may. And so for this reason, we rejoice in great boldness and we pray that you will use us as instruments of righteousness to bring the gospel to those who are in desperate need Of healing, not just physically, but spiritually. We thank you, we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Calvary Bible Church in Jolton, Tennessee. For more information on Calvary Bible Church, or for more audio, please visit our website at cbctn.org.